a really clear email, but that's the only way people hear about my pilgrimages. So, uh, and, and I'll say this, my Holy Land pilgrimage typically sells out in 10 to 14 days. So as soon as it's announced, if the dates work for you, you want to get, get the registration in quickly, but the only way you'll hear about it is if you're on the email list. So uh, don't, don't worry, you're not signing up for a pilgrimage. It's not like, oh, I have to go. When is it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's just you're on the email list to get the announcements about it. So that's what's there. Uh, do any of you listen to podcasts? Any podcast listeners out there? Any, anyone listen? I've met some of you. Who listens to my podcast? Okay, some of you listen. So I wanted you to check out my podcast. It's here. It's called All Things Catholic with Edward Sri. Uh, they tend to be short podcasts, 18 to 24 minutes usually, uh, concise. Uh, people say it's very real. Uh, there's some depth to it, but it's about real living of the Catholic life. I cover everything from saints to struggles in prayer, to virtue, to the mass, to Eucharistic devotion, to challenges in the culture. So a lot of stuff. I have one that just came out on Advent, uh, on living Advent well. Uh, I have my wife on sometimes. That's my, my, I do that so my ratings soar, usually when she gets on uh, the podcast. Uh, but I, I will tell you this. If you were to pull out your phone and you were to pull out uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and you were to search for my podcast, make sure you don't just put my last name, S-R-I. It's dangerous. If, if, if you search for my podcast under just simply S-R-I, you won't find me. You'll find an Indian Hindu guru. I'm not the Indian Hindu guru guy. You have to type in Edward S-R-I, and then you'll find my podcast, and you can subscribe there. It comes out every Tuesday. Uh, so I'll give a shout-out to you all next week. Uh, here at, at the, the great parish in Carmel, Indiana here. Um, so that's just a little background on some... The one, th one thing I wanted to mention... Well, no, I'll mention these at the end here. Let's jump in to the topic uh, for our talk today. I want to tell you about my Italian cousin Stefano. My Italian cousin Stefano. He, uh, he came to... It, uh, to the United States to visit us and it was for the first time he'd never been to America and we thought we wanted to give him an amazing American experience you know what we did coming from Chicago we took him to downtown Chicago to Soldier Field to watch a Bears game an NFL football game now I gotta tell you my my cousin Stefano he loves football he is so excited about football. He is passionate about football. The only problem is his football is what we call soccer. So when we show up at the Bears game, he has no idea what's going on. I mean, like, you know, we, we, we make a great play, and everyone's cheering, yay! And Stefano puts his hands up in the air with everyone else, yay! And he goes, did we win? I said, oh, no, no, we, we just scored a point. <laughs> You know, and then um, there's a, the ref makes a bad call, and so we put our fists up in the air, boo, and Stefano goes along with everyone else, boo, did the other team score? Oh, no, no, it was just a bad play. And then when the, the other team was punting, we blocked the punt, and we carried the football all the way down to the end zone and scored a touchdown. And you can just imagine pandemonium in Soldier Field. Everyone's jumping up and down. People are high-fiving each other. Stefano's high-fiving people. But this time, he doesn't even bother asking me a question. He just looks over at me and smiles as if to say, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm sure it's good for the Bears. <laughs> I think that's how many Catholics approach the Mass. You know, we stand up, we sit down, we kneel, we make the sign of the cross, we say thanks be to God, alleluia, amen. But 
we're just kind of going through the motions with everyone else. We don't know all that's going on. But I would say if we actually understood what's really happening in the liturgy, if we could see the Mass with the eyes of the angels, it would be so much a better experience for many of us. I think many of us go to Mass, and, and do you ever think this? I, I certainly hear many Catholics say this. I wish I could get more out of Mass. Well, I think we get more if we give more. But I can't give myself to Mass if I don't know what's going on, and that's what I want to take you through. I want to walk through some of the parts of the Mass uh, and understand the biblical background of the Mass so we can give ourselves more to Christ and encounter Him there. So you ready? Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. What's the first prayer of the Mass? Who knows? First prayer, we already did it. We just did it. Of the cross, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, this is a powerful prayer, not just in the Mass, but even outside of Mass. Biblically, you know what this prayer is all about? There's two things we're doing. On one hand, we're calling on God's name. We say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Bible, to call on God's name is to invoke his presence, his holy presence into our lives, his power into our lives. And so what we see is people in the Bible often calling on God's name to worship him and to invite him in to help them in time of need. So way back in Genesis 4, Adam's children start calling on the name of the Lord. Abraham calls on God's name. David calls on the name of the Lord. Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, what does he say? There I am in your midst. So the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the holy name of Jesus, these names, are, are divine names are powerful. And so what a beautiful way to start our, our Mass is to call on God's name and invite him in, but it's something we could do outside of Mass. You're driving through town, and, and, and you're just troubled by something. Call on the name of Jesus or make the sign of the cross. His presence is there when we call on his name. But what about this ritual of tracing the cross over our body? Go around doing this. Where did that come from? Uh, it goes back to early Christian practice, but it goes back even further into the Old Testament. Did you know that there's an Old Testament prophecy that can be seen as connected to the sign of the cross? Way back, I want to take you to the time of Ezekiel. I bet a lot of you don't know much about the time of Ezekiel, so I'll let you know it's about 600 years before Christ when the, the city of Jerusalem is going through great crisis. It's, first of all, a great moral crisis. The people have turned away from God. They still go to the temple and worship God, kind of, but they're worshiping other gods. And God sends this announcement through Ezekiel that one day God is going to send... Babylon is going to come and destroy the city and carry the people off into slavery in Babylon. The temple will be destroyed. Great devastation is coming. But God also offers some good news. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, verse 4, the prophet tells how there are some in Jerusalem who are not going along with the rest of the crazy culture around them. 
There are some in Israel who want to follow God's ways and not the world's ways. And they're going to be protected when the judgment comes on Jerusalem. And the sign of those that are, are faithful, the sign marking those that are faithful is the sign of the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is spiritually marked on the, on the foreheads of these faithful ones. That's the vision, the prophecy that Ezekiel has. What's fascinating, my friends, is that last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Ta, you know what it looks like? It looks like a cross. And so the early Christians saw that their practice of making the sign of the cross is similar to what was happening in Ezekiel's time. That just as in Ezekiel's time, the faithful ones that chose to be loyal to God and not go along with the corruption of the world around them, they were faithful and they were protected. They saw that in their pagan Roman world in which the Christians were living, when they make the sign of the cross, it was a way of saying, we're following your ways, God, and not the world's ways. It was a way to say, help me to be faithful. When there's all these pressures from the secular culture today, we can apply this in our own lives, we want to make the sign of the cross to have great power and strength to remain faithful. Listen to what some of the church fathers said about this idea of making the sign of the cross. They talked about how they made the sign of the cross all the time, not just at Mass, not just at meals, but all throughout their day, when they would get up, when they would go to bed. Listen to this. This is St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Let the cross as our seal be boldly made with our fingers on our brow on all occasions, over the bread we eat, over the cups we drink, in our comings, in our goings, before sleep, on lying down, on rising up, when we're on our way, when we are still. It's a powerful safeguard, a grace from God, a badge of the faithful, and a terror to the demons. See, the early Christians saw that when they made the sign of the cross, the demons would flee. That whenever they faced persecution, they'd make the sign of the cross to be strengthened to remain faithful. When they faced temptation to lust, temptation to anger, temptation to, to, to impatience, whatever it is, you know, they, they would make the sign of the cross. Listen to what Cyril says. It is a terror to the devils, for when they see the cross, they're reminded of the crucified one, and they fear him who has smashed the heads of dragons. So the early church fathers really believed this, and this is just a great, important, practical point for us, not just for the Mass, but in our own daily lives, if you are facing temptation, you're, you have one of those difficult moments in your marriage, and you're just like, why are we still, at, you know, just, we can't resolve this problem. Make the sign of the cross. You don't have to come all the way here to, to the chapel. If you could, come to the chapel and pray. That's awesome. But right there, you can make the sign of the cross and invite the power of God into your life right there. Help us to, to work through this, this conflict right now. Or I'm tempted to fall, like I said earlier, into that discouragement in life or into anxiety. Make the sign of the cross. Those demons of anxiety and, and discouragement will flee. This is a great thing. Do any of you trace the sign of the cross over your kids? Parents here, trace the sign of the cross over your children. I do this to my high school kids. I've got college kids now, and they're kind of like, oh, okay, dad's going to do that thing again. But, but, but this is my responsibility. I'm marking them off. What I'm doing is saying, may they be faithful. May they not be corrupted by the world around them. Jesus, I mark them off to be faithful for you. I just trace the sign of the cross. I'm not a priest, but as a layman, as a father in the home, this is something beautiful I can do. And I'm praying for protection. Protect them, Lord. Protect them from all harm. 
Protect them from all danger. We know how many harms and dangers there are in our world today. But most of all, protect them from all evil. May they always be marked off for you. A beautiful thing that we can do in our lives. The sign of the cross. All right, let's talk about another prayer. I'm going to jump ahead. I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to the Lord have mercy prayer. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. Um, is there anyone that's not terribly shy? Can I, can, can I have you come up here real quick? Are you terribly shy? You'll come up. What's your name? Barry. Barry. Let's give Barry a round of applause. He's coming up here. Do you all, when I was a kid, I played this game called Mercy. Did you ever play Mercy as a kid? Do you know what Mercy is, Barry? You put, you put your hand together like this with me. Okay, so we're going to like this. And then what you're doing, it's a, it's a tournament of strength. So we're going to try to overpower each other. So try to, like, push my arm back. Go stronger. Okay, so Barry's a lot stronger than I am. And, like, oh, wow, he's really overpowering me. And the only way the game ends, I'm in great pain. The only way the game ends is if I cry out, Mercy! And he lets go, and he wins, and I lose. So thank you, Barry. Yeah. <laughs> I used to think that that's what God's mercy was like. You know, like we're wretched sinners. We've disobeyed. We've broken the law. And, and then God is just going to punish us and send us to hell. But if we cry out for mercy, he's so loving, he'll forgive us. That's what I used to think mercy was all about. That's not biblical mercy. That's not the mercy we talk about in the Mass. The word, one of the words for mercy in the Bible is the Hebrew word hesed which means covenant, steadfast love, unconditional love, faithful love. It's the love that God loves us with, that no matter what we do, he still loves us. So through the Old Testament, we see this idea that God loves us. Even though we turn away, he still seeks us out. Hesed, covenant, steadfast love. May your steadfast love, or some translations say, may your mercy endure forever. That's real mercy, that God loves us. No matter what we do, all we have to do is turn back to him. You know, I think about a time, true story, my, my, some of my younger kids, I, I was watching them playing. They didn't know I was observing. And uh, the younger sibling had their favorite toy, was playing with his favorite toy. And then the older sister kind of came in and grabbed that toy, ripped it out of his hands, and started to walk away. So tell me, what's happening to the little boy? Favorite toy. What's he doing? He's not crying yet. Nope. He's, it's that delayed cry. You know what the delayed cry? It's like this. You know, it's about to wail up, but there's a couple second delay, you know. And I'm over here, and I happen to watch what just happened. And I, I, I was about to get up, and I'm like, uh-oh. Okay, flag on the play. <laughs> Personal foul, 15 yards here. You don't steal your sibling's toy like that. But before I even got out of my chair and did anything, I noticed that the older sister had, was aware that the little brother was, was about to cry and realized what she did. And she felt badly about it. And so she went back and she put the toy back in his lap, said, I'm sorry, and then gave him a big hug. And I was over here going, did that just happen? <laughs> Wow, things like that don't, don't really happen in here. That's amazing. But as a father, what happened here was, I, did I observe something go wrong? Did the, did the one child do something wrong? Yes. So, you know, there, there is a flag on the play. 
But I saw more than the fact of her mistake, her fault, her sin. I saw her heart, and her heart already felt badly. There's a part of her that didn't resonate with what she did. She realized, oh, I realized I, I hurt him. I don't want to hurt him, and she wanted to set things right. That's how our Heavenly Father looks at us. So we're crying out mercy. We're not crying out, oh, Lord, please don't send me to hell, and I don't want to be in purgatory too long. No, it's not that. It's I, I'm entrusting myself to God's amazing, steadfast love for me, that I trust that he loves me no matter what I do, that his love is not dependent on how well I perform in the Christian life. I need to perform well. I need to grow in that, but, but, but his love is, is endures forever no matter what. And so in, in, in this beautiful prayer, I just go to him and I just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Lord, have mercy. I entrust myself to your mercy. And I have confidence in his love. So I'm going to use this as a point to say, in the Mass, we encounter God's mercy very powerfully. But there's another place that we encounter his mercy quite powerfully. And it's a place we all need to go to in this season of Advent. What is that place? Chick-fil-A. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Chick-fil-A is just fine. But, uh, but anyway, but, uh, the, the, the Sacrament of Confession. If you've not been to confession in several months, go this Advent. If you've not been in several years, this is the Advent for you. There might be some people that haven't gone in several decades. And I want you to know, if you go to confession here, and you come for the first time and you say before Jesus, the Almighty God, right before you in the presence of the priest, and you say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been 30 years. Do you know what Jesus is going to say? He's going to say, it's about time you came back. No, he's not going to say that. Because remember, what is mercy? Has said, Jesus loves you. And, and, and no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been away from confession, he loves you. He just wants to remove the obstacles, the things that keep you from experiencing his love more. So when you come back, whether it's been a few weeks, a few months, a few years, a few decades, no matter what it's been, his arms are open wide, and he just wants to remove those obstacles. You come humbly, you admit your sins, you're truly sorry. He just, there's this beautiful grace that comes, and we're forgiven. Go to confession this Advent. I'm sure the parish, they'll make an announcement later. They have some kind of penance service here or nearby. There's confessions available regularly. Get to confession in the Advent season to prepare your heart to welcome Jesus at Christmas. All right, let's move forward. There's, a, there's so many parts of the Mass, and we can't go through them all tonight. Uh, I want to I wanna zoom in on a, a few more here. I'm going to skip over uh, the readings uh, and the Liturgy of the Word, uh, but come to the climax of the Liturgy of the Word. I want to talk about the creed. Why do we every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday repeat these same words? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of Heaven. Why, why do I say this? I mean, I believed last week. Why do I need to say it again this week? Maybe just once a year, annual, you know, renewal, you know? Can we just do that? Why do I need to do it every week? I think it has to do with the word believe. The word believe at the beginning of the creed. You see, the word belief, according to the Catechism, Article 150, isn't just an intellectual thing. Belief does involve my mind assenting, agreeing with everything that God has revealed through Jesus, through the Scriptures, and through His Church. 
So yes, believe is something involving my mind, but it's also something involving my heart. Catechism 150 describes how belief is also a personal entrusting of myself to God. So it's not just saying, yes, I believe that God exists. It's saying, I believe in you. I entrust myself to you. It's kind of like if I say to my wife, Beth, I look her in the eye and I say, Beth, I believe in you. I'm not just saying, I believe Beth Street exists. No, I'm saying, I believe in you. I trust you. I give myself to you. I entrust my heart, my entire life to you. That's what belief is really all about, and that's what we can grow in. You know, it reminds me, you may have heard the story of the man that was walking the tightrope over Niagara Falls. Did you hear the story? And he makes it to the other side, and all the people down below are cheering him on. Do it again! Do it again! And he says, do you believe I can do it again? And they say, yes, we believe in you. Do it again. He says, do you believe you, I can do it again? Blindfolded. And they say, yes, we do it again. He says, do you believe I could do it again blindfolded, pushing a wheelbarrow over the tightrope? And they all cheer him on all the more. Yes, we believe in you. Do it again. He says, do you believe I could do it again blindfolded, pushing a wheelbarrow over the tightrope with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And they say, yes, we believe in you. Do it again. He says, all right, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> you see, there's belief. And then there's belief. <laughs> Real belief is about jumping into the wheelbarrow with God. It's about allowing, not just a believing that there is a God and believing all the truths of the Catholic faith in our heads, that's essential, but it's about allowing God to be the foundation for my life and trusting him to really guide me, trusting his plan for my life and not my own. You see, Pope Benedict once reflected on the Hebrew word for belief, the Hebrew word hamin, which literally means to take your stand on something else. Like, what is the foundation you're standing on in life? And that's the question I ask all of you here tonight. It's the question we pose every week when we say the creed. What is the true foundation for your life? Is it your financial portfolio? Is it your job and career? Is it your reputation? Is it uh, keeping people liking you? Uh, is it certain dreams, a vision you have for your kids? Well, what is it that you, you, you stand on? You go, this is what will, I need to make me happy. Or do you truly allow God to be your, the foundation for your life? Do you wake up each morning and think, Lord, how can I use my life to serve your purposes today? How can I seek your plan? Like, what, 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 is it, what is your plan for my life today? How can I love you and my wife and in my children and in my friends and the people I, I work with? I want to use my life for your purposes, God, and not my own. That this is why every Sunday, week after week, and then when we pray the creed outside of this, like in the rosary, we're constantly, we're not just saying, oh, I check, 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 I believe all these doctrines. Yes, we're doing that. But we're also saying, and I want to give my heart to you more. I want to trust in you more. I want to believe in you more, Jesus. Help me to do that. That's why we have the creed week after week. Now, I want to take you to a, a, a high point in the Mass. I'm going to go all the way now. And there, again, I, I, there's so many parts of the Mass. We can look at the biblical background, unpack them. I, I, I want to really zoom in on the high point of the Mass, the consecration. When you hear those words, this is my body, this is my blood. Hear this as Catholics every time we go to Mass. But what if you weren't a Catholic? What if you were a Jew in the first century? 
What if you were one of the apostles at the Last Supper, hearing these words for the very first time? What would these words have meant to you if you were Peter, Andrew, John, James, one of the other apostles? I want to bring you back in a time machine now. I want to take you back to that first century Jewish world, into that first Mass, that first Eucharist at the Last Supper, and I want you to hear how those words would have sounded to you. So first of all, these words were spoken in the context of a great Jewish feast. Who knows, what's the name of that feast? The Passover. The Passover. Every year the Jews celebrated the Passover. And when you celebrate the Passover, what did you do? You, first of all, you did a retelling of the first Passover story. That famous story from Exodus 12 at the founding of their nationhood. That fateful night when God liberated the people from, from Egypt in slavery. What did God have them do? Take a lamb. Sacrifice the lamb. Put the blood on the doorpost and eat the lamb quickly. And then they escaped slavery under Pharaoh that night. But the Jews didn't just retell that story year after year at the Passover meal. You know what else they did? They reenacted it. It was a reenactment. You didn't just tell the story. Guess what? You got a lamb. You had it sacrificed. You ate of the lamb. So it was a retelling and a reenactment of the Passover more, uh, meal. But it, it, it doesn't stop there. There's something even greater that happened. It wasn't just a retelling. It, just, it wasn't just a reenactment. It was also a memorial. They celebrated the Passover as a biblical memorial. And I want to make sure you get this point. What does that mean? When we hear memorial, that just sounds like words, like Memorial Day. You know, we remember those who've died, maybe those that died in service to our country. You know, so we remember the past, kind of. That's not what a biblical memorial was. It was so much more than just remembering the past. The Jews believed, the ancient Jews believed, that when you celebrate the Passover as a memorial, the past event is actually made present to you, spiritually. The original Passover is mystically made present to you so that you can participate in it. It's not just a reminder or a memory of it. The past is made present. That's what memorial means, to make present. That's why Jewish rabbis around the time of Jesus say, when we celebrate the Passover, it's as if we are walking out of Egypt with our ancestors, with Moses and Joshua and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and all the, all the ancestors. We're walking out of Egypt with them. We're at one with our ancestors. So it'd be kind of like this. If we celebrated the 4th of July, the way Jews celebrated the Passover in the, in the first century, what we would do is we would have a solemn re-reading of the Declaration of Independence. So we'd retell the, past, the original founding of our country. We'd have a reenactment of it. We'd all kind of come up in a line and sign our names onto the Declaration of Independence. There'd be a reenactment of it but we would celebrate it as a memorial. We would believe that Thomas Jefferson was right there with us spiritually. Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, they're all mystically made present to us. We're united with our ancestors at this founding event of our country. That's what memorial means. So now, you ready? Let's walk into that Passover now, that Last Supper meal. And you're there, and it's so exciting. Jesus, it, it, you're there at this great meal, but then Jesus does something utterly bizarre, so strange, never happened before. You're, you're, you're at this Passover meal. What's the main course of the Passover? The lamb. Does Matthew's gospel mention anything about a lamb? How about Mark and Luke? 
Does John mention anything about a lamb there? None of the Gospels. St. Paul, when he gives an account of this in 1 Corinthians 11, does he mention a lamb? There's no lamb. That's crazy. Why is there no lamb? Like, to, to talk about the Passover meal and not to mention the lamb is like talking about Thanksgiving without mentioning football. You can't have Thanksgiving without a good football game on, right? You get the idea? So, so this is shocking. Is if, you're, if you're a Jew in the first century and you're reading this story, you're like, where's the lamb? But then you read on and you go, oh, I get it. There's the lamb. Because all the language Jesus uses is the language that would have been used in the temple sacrificial sacrifice system to describe the sacrifices of the Passover lambs. You see, he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Right there, you're already thinking about body and blood. The blood is separated from the body when an animal is offered in the temple in sacrifice. Then Jesus says, this is my body which is offered up for you. Technical language from the Passover, offered up used to describe the offering up of animals in sacrifice. And he goes on, he says, that this is my blood, which is being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Sacrifices in the temple, you would take the blood and pour it out over the altar for forgiveness of sins. Jesus is using all the technical language from the sacrificial system in the temple, language that would be applied to the lambs being sacrificed in the temple. He's taking that language and he's applying it to himself. It's his body being offered up like a Passover lamb. It's his blood that's being poured out like the blood of the lamb for the forgiveness of sins. And at the end of this meal, what does Jesus say? Do this as a memorial of me. Memorial. What does memorial mean for the ancient Jews? To make present. What's Jesus saying? Do this as memorial of me. In other words, make this present. Make, the, make this sacrifice present. Make this sacrifice, this offering of my body and of my blood present for all future ages. Why am I spending time on this? It's because Catholics don't really understand this amazing gift of the sacrifice of the Mass. You know, in March 2020, through April, May, June, when all of our churches were closed, I heard so many Catholics talk about how they missed Holy Communion. And we learned a lot about spiritual communion in those days. And it was very moving. I was, it was moved to hear that people missed Holy Communion. But I was very sad that I don't think I remember a single Catholic saying, I miss the sacrifice of the Mass. They miss Communion, which is something I receive, but there's something else that's just as important, and it's so sad Catholics don't know about this. The holy sacrifice in the Mass and how much of a difference this makes in my life. I can't live as a Christian without the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Now, I gotta be honest, when I was a kid in Catholic schools, I heard that language. They'd be over the loudspeakers at Catholic school. The holy sacrifice of the Mass will begin at 8.30. I was like, ooh, whoa, what is that? It's not that complicated. It's simply the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is made present to us at every Mass. That's what he said. This is my body offered up for you. This is my blood being poured out. Do this in memory of me. His very offering of his body and blood is made present to us at every Mass. Why? Jesus died once and for all 2,000 years ago on Calvary, on Good Friday. But that one pivotal moment in the history of the human race, 
that moment is made present to us so that we can enter into it. Why is this so important? Because we're called to unite all of our joys, all of our works, all of our sufferings with Christ. Catechism 1368 tells us that. And this is so essential, going back to the first talk. Do you want to grow in love? Do you want to grow in virtue? Do you mind the gap? Are you aware of those gaps? And do you want Jesus to change you? How many people here have areas in their lives where they can grow in sacrificial love? Everybody, I think, right? Okay, that's what I right? We all have areas like that. We all have many areas where we can grow in Christ-like love, sacrificial love. The number one place, if I want to grow in sacrificial love, the number one place to go for that is in the sacrifice of the Mass, where Jesus' sacrifice is made present to us so that he can live that sacrifice of his own through me. Because I can't do it on my own. I want to sacrifice for my wife. And as I said earlier, I do sometimes. And she thanks me. I'm sure the angels rejoice in those Edward Three virtuous moments. <laughs> but they laugh at me. <laughs> and they cry with me at all of my weaknesses and my foibles where I fall short. I need grace. As I said at the end of the last talk, we have to learn to rely on God's grace. And I, I, I learned to rely on that in prayer you know, in the scriptures, but most importantly, in the sacrifice of the Mass. So at those words of consecration, this is when I want to really close my eyes or look at the cross and just tell Jesus, I love you. I unite everything to you, all my joys, my successes, my failures, my weaknesses, my sorrows, everything with you. And I want Jesus to change my heart with his sacrificial love. I want him to take my hard heart to soften it. I want him to live his, what he did on Calvary. He gave everything. And I just feel like I don't have any more to give, Jesus. I'm exhausted. I, I, I'm weak. I struggle so much. I need you. When I said that Jesus wants to meet me in the Valley of Humility, I talked about that in the first talk, that the number one place he wants to do that comes in the Mass. Let Jesus meet you here. Give him everything and then tell him, but whatever I can't give, make up in me. May you live your sacrificial love through me, Jesus, because it's through the liturgy, through the liturgy that we are changed the most. If I want to be changed into Christ's likeness, the number one place that transformation takes place is in the sacrifice of the Mass. So let's never forget this beautiful gift. Now, I want to close with one last area. I just want to talk about what happens when, right before we go to Holy Communion. The priest holds up the host. Do you remember this? And he says these words. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Where do these words come from? They come from the Bible, like all the prayers do. They come from Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, it's the great climactic moment of the book of Revelation. Really, the climactic moment of all of Scripture. The angel says, blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And what the angel is announcing is the mystical wedding feast between Jesus, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Jesus is the bridegroom, we're the church, we're the bride, and we're coming together in this great wedding feast. That's what the angel announces. And what's fascinating is all throughout the Bible, there are many different images to describe our relationship with God. God is creator. God is Lord. He's master. He's lawgiver. 
He's Father. Jesus is our brother. But the most intimate language to describe the closeness God wants to have with us is the image of marriage. That God is a bridegroom and we are the bride. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament when, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel and they made the covenant at Mount Sinai. God was the husband and Israel was the bride and the Ten Commandments that they, that they affirmed were like the wedding vows. That's how the ancient rabbis understood this. And the desert period was like the honeymoon, but when Israel turns away and worships other gods, she becomes like an adulteress, the prophets say. In some cases, when she's really running after the pagan gods, she's not faithful to the one true God, her husband. Israel's described as like a harlot, a prostitute. But what does God do when Israel turns away? Remember, God has unconditional love, hesed, mercy, unconditional love. That even when we turn away from him, he's running after seeking us. That's why the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, God says, I, I will allure her. I will woo her back to me. She's running after all these other men. And yet Jesus, the, the Yahweh is going to run after and win her heart back. And he says that I will betroth you to me again. I'll betroth you to me. We'll be betrothed forever. So there's a prophecy about how God is going to come one day as bridegroom. He's going to come as the bridegroom to come and reunite himself to his people, the bride. That's why it's no mistake, no coincidence, that the first miracle Jesus performs takes place in the context of a wedding at Cana, John chapter 2. In the very next chapter, John chapter 3, John the Baptist says, Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the one. I'm just the best man preparing, making all the preparations. He's the bridegroom. And then you get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. The climax of all of Scripture. The angel announces, Blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is the final consummation between Christ, the bridegroom, and us, his people, the church. Did you realize at Mass, did you ever get a wedding invitation? My daughter just got engaged. So first street child, off to get married next December. Uh, so new milestone in the street family house. But, but do you ever get a wedding invitation? Do you realize every time you go to Mass, you're getting a wedding invitation? That's what's happening. When, when the priest holds up the host and says these words, he's echoing the words of the wedding invitation in Revelation 19.6. Blessed are those called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And do you realize this? When you come down the aisle to receive Holy Communion, you are no ordinary guest at this wedding. Who are you? You are part of the bride. So when you come down the aisle to receive Communion, it's like, here comes the bride to receive this deep union with the bridegroom in Holy Communion. This is what Communion is. It's this great mystical union with our great beloved, our bridegroom, our Savior, Jesus. This is why we want to take time. Take time to be with the one we love after Holy Communion. When you go back to your pew, this is not the time to look at your watch and see how much longer. This is not time to look around and see what people are wearing or time to develop your parking lot exit strategy. <laughs> it's not time to be thinking about those donuts. <laughs> no, this is time to rest with your bridegroom, 
your beloved, to tell him you love him. If you're not talking to Jesus now, pouring out your heart to him, thanking him, loving him, pouring out your needs to him, if you're not doing that after Holy Communion, when will you ever really do it? So let's close by reflecting on something most people never reflect on. I certainly never did until I read something from St. John Paul II. St. John Paul II once reflected on Mary's first communion, the Blessed Virgin Mary's first communion. What would it have meant for Mary to go to Mass one day and receive Holy Communion? Think about that. Her son that she carried in her womb all those years grows up, dies, rises, goes, ascends to heaven, and sometime, we don't know when or where, Mary goes to Mass with the Apostles. And she receives the Eucharist for the first time. Whoa! Think of what that would have meant for her. John Paul II said, At the Annunciation, Mary conceived the Son of God in the physical reality of his body and blood, thus anticipating what to some degree happens sacramentally in every believer who receives the Lord's body and blood in the Eucharist. So Mary carried the flesh and blood of Jesus in her womb those nine months. And that mystery of what, what, what happened there is anticipating what, what, we, what we receive sacramentally, the body and blood of Christ. We become like Mary when we receive Holy Communion. It's, 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 an, uh, it's amazing to think about. Then John Paul II thinks about, okay, so then imagine Mary going to her first communion. He says, what must Mary have felt as she heard from the mouth of Peter, James, and John and the other words and the other apostles, the words spoken at the Last Supper, this is my body which is given for you. The body given up for us and made present under sacramental signs was the same body which she had conceived in her womb. Imagine what she hears the apostles talking about. He said, this is my body given up for you. That body that was given up for us on the cross in the Eucharist was conceived in her womb. I mean, how amazing this would be. And then, JP2 draws the connection for Mary's first communion. He says, quote, For Mary, receiving the Eucharist must have somehow meant welcoming once more into her womb that heart which had beat in unison with hers. Those nine months, the Sacred Heart of Jesus beating in unison with hers, Every mom, I saw some moms here, you know, they're expecting, you know, expecting moms even, where, you know, they got a, a baby in their womb, the baby's kicking, you know, you're just so attentive to that child. But imagine being Mary, you don't have any child in your womb, you have the Son of God. Your Creator is in your womb, what a mystery. Every little baby kick is a divine kick, I mean, that's just, wow. <laughs> and then your son grows up, dies, ascends to heaven, but you go to Mass, you're Mary, Receiving the Eucharist must have somehow meant welcoming once more into her womb that heart that beat with hers. Let every communion be that time to rest with Jesus, to be so ardently attentive to him, not so focused on rushing out and let's linger, spend time. There's a great tradition of thanksgiving, taking time. Just because the priest passes you doesn't mean you can dart out. I mean, you can, but why would you? 
rest with him. Spend time. Whatever your most urgent need is, bring it to Jesus. Just spend, pull your kneeler down, kneel down for just a few minutes after Mass. It's a beautiful thing to rest with your bridegroom, the one who loves you so much, who's so present to you. Will you be present to him at every Holy Communion like Mary would have been? So all that I'm sharing with you here is from this book here that I wrote called A Biblical Walk Through the Mass. We just came out with the 10-year anniversary edition just a few months ago. It was 10 years ago when the new Mass translation came out, so uh, we, we did the original edition back then. This is an updated edition. I cover more parts of the Mass in it and uh, added new reflections after 10 years of teaching on the topic. So that's what this book is. If you're wanting to understand the Mass more, helping the next generation appreciate the Mass, with like, Mass is boring. Why do I need to go to Mass? I don't get anything out of it. Uh, this could be a great resource to unpack the biblical background. If you have Protestant friends that are wondering, why do you Catholics have all this ritual? Like, is it, where is this in the Bible? This shows how every little prayer is coming from sacred scripture. There's nothing more, no more biblical way to worship God than in the Mass. So you can uh, re re check this out as a resource. And then we also have uh, a video study that goes along with the book that you can get as well. And this we got to film in a beautiful cathedral, uh, a beautiful basilica. Uh, so originally we did videos where it's just me teaching in a church, but this was a spectacular basilica. We move around. We're talking about all the different parts of the Mass. Uh, beautifully shot. So it really brings out the beauty of the sacred liturgy. This is a Bible study that you can use with your family just at home. I know many families have used this at home. Uh, people, men's groups, women's groups use this. We have these available as well. These are on sale uh, as well there. So in closing, I'll just mention I, there were a lot of you that wanted me to sign books uh, and I wasn't able to get everybody because uh, I had to rush back in here, but I'm not darting out right now. So if you want a book signed for yourself or for a family member as a Christmas gift, I'm going to stay here until I'm done signing books. So as many as, as we need to do there. Remember, I've got this book here on Advent. If you're looking for something to enrich you on Advent, we have the other two books uh, that are on sale as well from the first talk. Last thing I'm going to mention is this book here. If anyone's looking for something to help them with the rosary, they know the rosary is a great important prayer, but they don't get it. They don't understand it. It feels like the marathon of all Catholic devotions. Why can't I just do a Divine Mercy chaplet that just takes too long? Uh, if you ever have those feelings and you're, you get dis does anyone get distracted praying the rosary? Does that happen to people in Carmel, Indiana? Uh, if you want to, how do I focus on more on the rosary? How do I encounter Jesus and Mary in the rosary? Uh, this is a book called Praying the Rosary Like Never Before. That uh, can be a helpful resource in this season as well.